Well, again, uh, this morning, uh, we, we've been just talking about the men here, and um, Mike and, and Harrison, uh, you know, they've just been uh, repeating some things that have just been in my heart, and I'm sure in the heart of Jody Ellen and in the heart of others, that truly, that truly desire Christ in their experience, you know. But I think the thing that keeps us, the enemy will use, and I think one of his most deceptive things for the believer in Christ, and me, meaning when we say in Christ, all we're saying is that the moment that an individual, an individual receives Christ, he receives the very person of Christ. Think about that. Is it? And not only the person of Christ, but all that he in his persons alone has already accomplished about us to his Father and for our benefit. That's who it is in Christ. But the thing that the enemy will do, I think one of the greatest things, and this is the thing that I've learned over the past and had to learn it in the most humble way, because I will tell you this, the will of the flesh hates humility. I'm going to tell you, my flesh in me hates humility. And when I say that, it's, it's frightening to think about it. That we could actually, the, uh, us, placed by God in the love of his Son, in Colossians 1, 12 and 13, we have been transliterated out of the kingdom of darkness, no image, lost, and into the very image of the Son of his love. When I think about that, that when I think that that's my position, that's how God sees me. But how can I see God apart from truth? And this is how that can happen. This is how it can happen. Because here, we know this. As many as would, would try to say otherwise, but in Romans 8 verse 7 it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Were those believers, was the church in Corinth when he was speaking to them, were they born again? Were they in Christ? They absolutely were. But if you read it in that first chapter in Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 3, you will see that they were functioning as babes. What kind of babes? This is the kind. Here it is in Romans 8 verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Again, I'm going to go back to Lordship Salvation. The reason I'm going back to it is because God seems to be bringing it up again in me, teaching me, okay, that if I think that I need to do something when Christ has already done it, that is the worst kind of deception for a believer. And all it will amount to is for they that are after the flesh. Who's the they? The context is those that are in Christ, in Romans 8, 1, with whom there's no guilt or condemnation, period. There just isn't. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has to do with the baptism of the Spirit, by the way. For the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that all it could bring out was the weakness in my flesh. Weakness. But what happens when the flesh does not want to be weak, refuses the, the truth that we're weak? Here it is. For they that are after the flesh 
mind, their whole mind is set on the things of the flesh. What is that in the Christian? It's called in 2 Peter 1, verse 20, private interpretation. The only way we can interpret the scriptures apart from humility and grace and submitting to the Holy Spirit, who is our guide in John 16, 13, and 14, who will be our guide until we meet Christ face to face in Psalm 48 and verse 14. He will be our guide until our death. And in Ecclesiastes 7, 1, the day of our death is better than the day of our birth because in Romans 6, 9, in Christ, he that dies once dies no more. This is all I was in our position. But what can I be in my experience? For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Their whole mindset is the flesh, interpreting the scriptures. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is what? Death, separation. No wonder Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Could that be a Christian in their experience? in whom the God of this world has blinded, really hardened the hearts of them that believe not. How does he harden the heart of a believer? By making them think and convincing them that they can do something apart from Christ that will please God. That is lordship salvation. Based upon covenant theology. And when you present that as truth to someone, when they don't know better and when they are, they, none of us, obviously, in Christ can be possessed. But can you be obsessed? Absolutely. And this obsession, and an obsession just not being occupied with Christ, his person and what he finished, <laughs> to the glory of God, to his glory, and our glory in him, in Colossians 1.27, that obsession is the flesh. Thinking, And then when you preach the truth, and someone thinks you're coming against them, but are you? For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded. Spiritually minded is again 1 John 2, 20. We all have that unction. 1 John 2, verse 27. That anointing is God the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, and why does it say he, that anointing is God the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit will take Christ who was anointed of God to do what only he could do and has done. We have no need that any man, just any old man, should teach us. But we have the Holy Spirit who understands all things, knows all things, and there's a proper order in that, of course. But for to be carnally minded is what? Separation, death. But to be spiritually minded has to do with life. The Holy Spirit is bringing out who we are in Christ. It's who? Life. Who is our life in Colossians 3, 4? Christ. Who is our peace in Ephesians 2 and verse 14? Christ is that. Right? And as opposed to it, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That word enmity is strong, settled, unchangeable thoughts and feelings of absolute hatred toward God. And to think that in that, that in that place, I think I'm doing something for God. Doesn't that remind you of what Saul was like before he met Christ? Doesn't it remind you? He thought he was doing God's service. You read that 
in the 8th chapter of Acts and in the ninth chapter of Acts when he finally met Christ. And you also see in John 16, verse 2, they think, they that kill the body of Christ, truth that pertains to his person and the work that he's accomplished, they that kill the body of Christ think they do God's service. And service has to do with worship, and all they're doing is worshiping the flesh and who's behind it. Fact of the matter is, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Listen, for is is not subject to the law of God. What is the law? Is it the Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 to 17? No, it's Romans 8, 2 and 3. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that's the legalism, that's the flesh, that's lordship salvation, that's covenant theology, that's one naturism, that's annihilationism, that's universalism. For what the law could not do, and then it was what? Weak through the flesh. What do we don't want to be as Christians? And the enemy convinces us not to be weak. What do you think he was trying to tell Eve? You don't need God. You can be strong enough on your own. You can interpret the scriptures. You don't need God's order. You don't need a local assembly. You don't have to come and hear the word. Matter of fact, you can pick and choose whenever you want to. Like it's our choice to understand when, where, and how our need is to be met. <laughs> For any of us, I am telling you, God has so had to humble me and to constantly convince me of the thing that's in my flesh that I don't want to be. Ed, you are weak. And in Psalm 102, verse 23, I will do everything in my love and power in Christ through the Holy Spirit to weaken your strength that you think you're so strong about in yourself. And I'm going to, because of my love, unconditional grace, mercy, wisdom, I'm going to shorten your days in that way. That's not the way that my son is in you, but you're not functioning of. In John 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way. And what? The truth. And when he's the way, the will submitted, and he, the experience is truth, then what is there? There's the experiential life in Christ. He has to make us weak, and we don't want to be. We don't want to be in the flesh. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There's all the frustration, the struggles, the truth that comes to you. And believe me, many times we have to be confronted. There's sometimes we need to be, have that cup of cold water thrown right in our face. And, and really, in that sense, think about it. If we truly are intreatable, and he, we are prepared. Can anything cause me to stumble in Psalm 119, 165? Great peace have they that love your law. Nothing will cause them to stumble. I have great peace. When I don't know that I have great peace experientially, and then I'm trying to keep it by doing something, by me think, thinking that I, can, I now have to produce fruit. 
when clearly in the scriptures, it's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Their fruit is from me in Hosea 14 and verse 8. They'll bring forth fruit in their old age in Psalm 92 and verse 14. Some would take it, the covenant crowd, who don't understand and don't know the difference between kingdom teaching, the synoptics, which it's all kingdom, which has never taken place on this earth, but will in the future in the millennial reign, but it happens to happen, ha- happens after the second advent. And as much as some don't want to believe it, in between those two advents, there is the rapture of the church, which is the least thing, it, it's just hardly even spoken of anymore. And if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in their own doing, in their own seeking for peace, in their own trying to produce fruit when the soil itself is bad. That's Luke 8, 15. And those three, prior to that, those seeds and those hearings, also brought out in Matthew, the 13th chapter, that can be just as much as a believer in their experience as it can be of the unsaved. Because you tell me, and God would tell us, What is the difference with the flesh that's in you that you're not of, Romans 8, 9, any different than the unsaved? What appeals to us when it's not Christ? The flesh, what we can do to please others. And it's all about us now. It's all about our doing. Then I become a fruit inspector for God. Christ is no longer my occupation My occupation now, through the works of the flesh, makes me a legalistic Pharisee, read Matthew the 23rd chapter, to spy out other believers to see if they're bringing fruit or not, and if they don't, they cannot be saved because they, 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 Lordship Salvation teaches, they have not made Christ their Lord. We don't make him anything. (laughs) He already is, Lord. And they don't even understand that. And this truth is never against, uh, never against a believer. But we need to be confronted. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it's gentleness. But that will come with a continuation of preaching and teaching too, by the way. We'll miss volumes. We might miss A through H. But then God needs to redeem it, so he'll bring in this. (laughs) And he's always waiting to be gracious. So here again, in in Romans 8, 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The they there is who? Those that are in Christ, positioned in him, accepted in Ephesians 1, 6, but not functioning in him. And that's why can a man receive anything in John 3, verse 27, except to come from heaven, and that was Christ? What can we do without him in John 15, 1 through 5? What produces the fruit that's on the branches? Isn't it the vine that Christ is? <laughs> Who produces the fruit? It's his works in Ephesians 2.10. Not only saved, and never mind conf- and trying to fuse Fuse the foolishness of trying to fuse justification and sanctification and making it one thing. And if you don't do that, you can't be saved. It's just really, really the things that we come up against. And if you don't think we don't, if you don't think that those that, that preach these things don't need prayer from the atmosphere coming intensely against them, believe me, we're not weak enough 
in our own lives to think that we need to constantly have prayer, which teaches constant, continual, absolute, unchanging faith dependence upon Christ and his word, period. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But look, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh. Positionally, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God is dwelling in your experience. <laughs> huge, huge not to know the difference. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ in his experience, can he in his experience be his in terms of being accepted. And if I don't know this truth, I, I'm saved, but now I, the least I can do is do this for Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 8, verse 29, I always do those things that please him. Do we? No. But are we positioned in him? Yes. And being positioned in him, does he deeply desire intimacy and fellowship with us? In 1 John 1, 1 through 5, yes, yes. That's why we're to walk in the character, the light of the character of who we are in Christ. In 1 John 1, 7. And that will continually experience what that finished work has accomplished forever. And then that's why no man can say in 1 John 1, 8, I don't have a sin nature. That's the difference between 1 John 1, 8 and 1 John 1, 10. 1 John 1, 8 is, a, and let no man say he doesn't have sin, a sin nature. We are all born with that in Psalm 51 and verse 5 and Psalm 58 and verse 3. We were conceived in sin. There's no, no question about it. We were conceived in this sin nature that we inherited through the line, our first head, Adam. And, and let no man say that, that we're not. But 1.8 is let no man, 1 John 1.8, let no man say he, does, he doesn't have a sin nature. Now, but we, if we confess our sins, who are those that are confessing their sins? Those that have actually received Christ as their Savior, their old nature has been crucified as far as God is concerned and my faith in him. See, my faith dependence meets where God sees me in his unchanging eye in Job 36 and verse 7. He sees me perfectly situated in the righteousness that Christ has won and given to me by pure grace in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and in 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Of him are you in Christ Jesus, who's made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. According as it is written, he that glories let him glory in the Lord, not self-glorification through, through thinking that I produce fruit and then I become an inspector of others. There is preaching and teaching on that, of course. And that's when 1 John 1.10, which is even worse, let no man, I don't care who you are, save the run, say, let no man say that you have not sinned. That's the difference. But thank God we, only those in Christ who've received Christ, whose lot they have personally confessed over Christ. Each person has to do that. No one can do that for you. That's brought out in the types in Leviticus 1 and verse 4 and brought out in the two lots in Leviticus 16, 1 through 7. There's one lot for the Lord. That was propitiation dealing with a sin issue in John 1 verse 29. 
Behold the Lamb of God that dealt with the whole sin issue between him and his father, period. Then, of course, it's made available for whosoever will receive the fact that they, he, he paid for your personal sins. And that brings out 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, very clearly in the scriptures. Very, very clearly. And we only know these things by pure grace. There's no two ways about it. There's nothing natural. God doesn't use anything of the natural in this to teach us anything. Well, all, we all, all cannot function properly apart from him in constant dependence. I may be able to declare these things, but I could be living just as bad as the worst sinner and declare them but not experience them. That's why he has to make us weak. That's why he gave us, he gives us all this heavenly truth like he gave to the Apostle Paul when he went into the third heaven. He said, I heard things. He said, I am telling you, I'll tell you what I can tell you and the Holy Spirit will give me what Christ has accomplished to tell you now on earth. He said, but there were things that I heard. I can't even put human language to it. And he was a very, very spiritually intelligent man at that point. But in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he, he went into the third heaven. But then coming back to the earth to tell us the things that were not only his, but all of ours in Christ, he had to have a thorn because he'd go right back to the flesh to declare it and not experience it and make people look to him and not Christ. Again, lordship salvation, covenant theology. He had to give him a thorn. You know what? That's the other side of the cross. Boy, I tell you, if I could get into what, what God gave this morning. You know, the ark was built of what was called shittim wood. It's a kayo wood. It's a beautiful, hard, dense, gorgeous wood. It was used to make the ark. It was made from the acacia tree. But you know the beauty of that tree? When it was broken and what you could make it into to make it an ark, the mercy seat in Exodus 25, uh, um, uh, 17 to 22, the mercy seat, type of Christ, the beauty of it, his beauty when he was crucified on Calvary, the beauty that came out. But in that beauty that we have, and we do have that beauty, there were thorns that protected the beauty of that acacia tree. And that's the picture of the cross. And the cross, God always has to implement the cross to the, to the flesh that's in the believer. That's the other beautiful side. And it's the same side of his love that's for us. Meaning, he will always love us and let us to know that those sins are dealt with. But when we function in him, he will not bypass them. They get in the way. They get in the way of his glory and the depth of our fellowship and our blessing. And we can get into those types another time, but boy, they are loaded. I mean, they're incredibly, beautifully loaded. There's two, there's two, you know, the side of love, the side of love is there's love, and the other side is justice. And when justice is not met, and you meet God without that, without a substitute, you face wrath because it doesn't change. God's nature never changes. 
as long as he's ever been, there's love and justice. Because if he was going to create angels and man, and then he would have free will, there would be, there would be in one sense the problem of free will, which God in his unbelievable power and omniscience dealt with through Christ, fulfilling his will for all those that would receive it in John 4, verse 34, the finished work in John 19, 30 on the cross. What a beautiful thing. But there are thorns, and that's what Paul needed, and that's what we need. Because those thorns continue to tell us, you listen to me, this is all yours. But you're too weak to even hold it yourself. And I have to humble you. And boy, I am telling you, the flesh in me does not want to be weak. It doesn't want humility. It wants to be in control and be in charge. And that's it. (laughs) That's where all that false teaching comes from. You know what, this morning... And I can't wait to get into this in depth on on Monday. The Word of God, the Word of God is indefectible. That's what it is. The Word of God is indefectible, meaning it's unfailing. It can't fail. It doesn't fail. It's not liable to defeat. Think about this. But for us to experience that, He has to make us weak. So we experience the strength of Christ that did all this personally for each of us. It's not liable to defeat, failure, or decay. And because it's indefectible, and we've shared these words before, it's indefeasible. It's indefeasible means it can't be undone. It can't be. And God is in the business of teaching Christians who they are. They may not know it. And you try to, here's the truth, And when you present the truth, they look at you as you as against who they are in their flesh that they think is doing godly service. And it becomes an issue. It's it's what? Indefeasible. You can't undo it. It can't be defeated. It's not to be defeated. You can't make it void. God never does and never has. You look at the Bible and I'll look at it with you. He never has ever adjusted his thoughts to anything other than himself. (laughs) The very word of God to anyone in any of the successive generations in these dispensations in which mankind is located in the eternal mind and plan of God, he's never changed his mind. That's why, why, I don't know, in one sense, I don't know the difference between the word of God and, and... the original word of God, and now let's bring it in the contemporary sense. Or let's have a contemporary service. I don't even know what that is. What is that? You mean God didn't in his eternal mind see every successive generation and that word wasn't the same? You mean he would have to make adjustments based upon the evil increase of the world system? Never. Never. And when I think that I have to do that, make apologies for the Word of God and apologize for Christians, then what do I do? They enter into what I do is what I do. I attenuate the Word of God. What's that mean? I attenuate the Word of God. I weaken or reduce and force the intensity, the effect, the quantity, and the value to make it thin. 
to make it slender or fine. I taper it gradually to a very narrow extremity. See, that's the enemy. That's what he does. And what you and I don't know or experience what is ours, then all that is left is what? What is all that is left? What's all that left? It's a mind void of these truths in our experience, and we're only left of the flesh to discern it. But with a spiritual mind of discernment in wisdom, he gives discernment for the practical details of life. You wouldn't believe, even in the practical details of life, what Christians think that, that living in Christ is. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. Is it anything like the world? And is it any piece of it? Any, is any piece of it in this world like who we are in Christ? Is there a major difference in, in Exodus 11, verse 7, and 1 Kings 18, verse 25? God puts a difference between Egypt and Israel. God puts a huge difference. You know that world system that we're still in, but not of? In John 17, 14, he wasn't of this world system. Never. The whole time he walked the face of the earth, he was never of it. He was in it. He wasn't of it. Neither are we of it. In John 17, verse 16. But can I function in it, even though I'm not of it, if I don't know the truth? If I don't have a spiritual mind of discernment? To even know how. How do I live? What is it? What is the life of the Christian? You tell me. You know what they, you know what they consider life of the Christian? details. The details. That's who we are. That's who we are. That'll determine who we are. No, Christ is our life. In Colossians 3, verse 4. We've said it, and God has taught us countless times, has to bring us back to remembrance of it. We're not trying to live the Christian life. It's not hard. It's impossible because Christ is our life. He's the only one that is our life individually. And when I don't individually submit to him, or I don't know what to submit to, as a believer, I function in the flesh. Now, I must do something to fill the void. I have to do it. It's some activity. Listen, folks. Listen, we are here to be taught Christ. Period. Period. The, the, acti the Christ, so-called Christian activity has to cease. The teaching of the word has to increase. Let me make that clear. Seriously, because what the enemy would love to determine about what fellowship is, is some of the world mixed with Christians having a happy time doing certain things and call it fellowship. Fellowship is around the person of Christ in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. There is no question about it. And if it's not him, what life am I living for a Christian, it can only be the life of the flesh. And boy, when you come against that, and I don't want my will submitted, and I don't want to be the one that's in control, and I don't want God's order in a local assembly, when I don't want those things, I consider you an enemy, and you, 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 I've heard this before, you don't understand me. You don't know. Excuse me. When did the order get flipped? <laughs> I'll tell you why, because there's no order in a person's life, apart from a proper functioning 
local assembly. You know, if that were true, God, I'll tell you, Thanksgiving or not, it would be full there and it would be full here. Guarantee you that right off the bat. But what other things become more important? For all of us, too. No question about it. There's no question about it. Satan wants to convince in ignorance, sometimes in outright rebellion, convince you and I that we can mix sin with grace and grace with sin. Now, some Christians really think that. Well, I know I shouldn't do that, but God's given me grace so I can grow. Is there any growth in sin? In Romans 6, 1 and 15, does God give grace, the grace and truth that his son is so I can live in sin? Never. Should I do evil that good may abound? Revelation 3, 8. Uh, Romans 3, 8, I should say. Romans 3, 8. Should I do evil that good may abound? You know what it says? God forbids it. Instantly forbids it. The thing, I'm going to repeat it again. The thing that I know the least is what is most dangerous to me. Someone's only hope may be that you reveal their wrong character and conduct to do it in love. But do I even know what love is? Do I even know who God is? Is there protection in the love that God is without obedience? When I reverence God, listen to this one. When I truly reverence God, I'll never be a respecter of persons to other people, ever. Never. I never will. And God has to separate the soul, self-conscious living in the flesh and the believer in Ephesians 4 and verse 12 from the God-conscious living so that that's the place where the Holy Spirit is, is enabled to take the things of Christ on a continual basis and show them unto us. But when the soul cleaves to the meaningless, the very dust of the humanity, instead of Christ from heaven, they have no meaning. They have no security. They're try still trying to prove that they have value in themselves, and that's the reason Christ did it. No. Read, read Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Read Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Read Romans 3, verse 23. Read Romans 6, verse 23. All these verses. Read John 6, 63. Read Romans 7, verse 18. There's no good thing in me. That's in the Christian. It's not an unsaved person that's in the seventh chapter, as some would teach, as an unsaved person. It's not an unsaved person. It's the continuation of growth. You have to go down till finally the cry is not, God, who's going to help me or help me to help you be pleased? It's who's going to deliver me from this body of death, this, this life that I'm living in separation. I thought I was supposed to be happy in Christ. I thought I was supposed to have joy. There is joy in his presence in Psalm 1611. But you have to, in 16.8, set the Lord before your face. That just happens to be Christ. That's your proper image. That's who it is. And so, instead of living in the expression of who you are and with Christ in you as your proper image, you live in self-expression based upon a lie with absolutely no meaning. What does it mean, no meaning? 
Well, how does a Christian have no meaning? They have no understanding. They have no value. They have no primary foundational security, and when you lack that, you lack total significance. What's the point? And God has to bring those, even our precious believers that have been taught by the lie of covenant theology as believers in Christ and lordship salvation. He has to bring them and us in the flesh. There's no, listen, there's no question about it. Who am I in the flesh? I may preach against lordship salvation, but let me tell you something. In the flesh, I'll function like that. But God needs to bring us to the place of complete self-help and self-hope and find ourselves in the hope that Christ is in us in our experience. And when my experience is the equal of my position, I am in Romans, the eighth chapter and 37th verse, more than a conqueror because I'm in him, who, in him who's done it all. And so instead of that, I have, I have this new identity. And without an identity, I have no meaning. Without a personal, individual, intimate relationship, positioned in Christ and experiencing him. And that's why even any part of this Bible, if I don't understand it in its proper sequence, if I, I may have knowledge, but I can have knowledge without Christ and it's meaningless. If you don't believe me, look at Saul. Everything about that man's life was meaningless. He was living in covenant theology and lordship salvation after Christ, after he, and all the types even that he knew pointed to Christ. It's just that he messed it in his self-dependence, his self-expression, and self-expression is just living in the lie that I can do something apart from God. It's the creature thinking he doesn't need his creator any longer, angel or man, but especially us in Christ. He's no respecter of persons. This is true for all of us. We can either have the yoke of bondage we see that in Galatians chapter 5. We see it in, in uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 15. We see that. We either can have a yoke of bondage or a yoke of freedom in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. And depending upon which yoke you choose, that will be either the lie of a bad image or the truth of truly who you are and a proper identification in the image that Christ has made for you and I, and he did it individually. And all of this truth goes into, goes into expiation. And we, we'll share on that on Monday. And we'll get into the, to the thorns and, and, and what they represent all through the old covenant, right into the fulfillment of the new, all those types. But thank God. Thank God. I tell you what. Recently, I just been, I've been very humbled. And you know what it came to find out? I was living in the reputation of, of pride or the pride of reputation, an absolutely false image. False image. You know why? Because I ceased, I ceased constant humility and dependence. Ceased it and put, and then started functioning under another wrong yoke. And believe me, not just some people are my enemy, everybody is. But ultimately, the truth of the matter is, when I live in the blame game and blame people, the truth of the matter is, as a believer, I'm just blaming God. I am his enemy in my experience when I am positioned in Christ and he sees me in him.
Oh, Lord. And Father, just help us. And boy, do we need help. No, we need humility. And thank God, that's the thorns. That's the thorns that protect the rose. It's all love. Things that we hate, the things that the flesh hates. The thorns of the acacia tree that was used in the ark and could make the most gorgeous furniture and beauty. There was beauty expressed in it, but God will always protect it. And he protected it through the cross. He protects his glory. It's his love, first and foremost. And he's going he's to protect that glory of Christ in us. You can be sure of that. And he's going to make us know. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure, but you best know it, Ed. It's you are a fragile clay jar, weak in yourself, that the excellency of the power, you need to know it constantly, maybe of God, never for a second of yourself, ever. But it is who you are in him. And it's who we are in him. It's who we all, all are in him. And then we have that great, great protection of love. And in that love, now I can reverence him with great awe. And never live again in wrong fear in 1 John 4, 18. Fear, that's, that is, Galatia says, has torture, has torment, I should say, has torment and punishment. But I can live in the reverential awe of who Christ is in me and who he's made me to be in the glory of his Father, first and foremost, and in the glory, the hope of it, that is mine for an eternal destiny that's established and still is completely established about who we are in Christ in Colossians 1 and verse 27. And that's what we're to do, and we can only do it when the excellency of the powers of him and not ourselves. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, I'm determined that when I'm among you, I'm not going to know anything but Christ and him crucified. In you, in the individuals. Because I want you to know, he said, that even though I have this great truth, I went into the third heavens, I'm no different than you. I'm with you in weakness and trembling. I am. That your preaching should not stand in man, in the faith of man, but in the power of God through Christ as it is. And we are so thankful for that, Lord. We thankful. Oh God, just please let us remember that without a yoke, without a will that's captured and held safe and secure, because now he truly is my creator, to keep me safe when, when evil will begin to compete with who you are in Christ. Friends, he needs to, he, we need to know that. Evil Evil and wants to, wants to affect the will that's not surrendered, the flesh that's in the believer. It begins to compete with who we are in Christ rather than with Christ in you. And the reason that they or anyone else doesn't remember is because they throw off their yoke. And that, listen, what we throw off is personal intimacy with his love for ourselves and for them. And we're so thankful, Lord, for your truth this morning. Thank you. And just, oh, Lord, may we talk about these things when we're together, when we work, when we go home to our wives, when we're on our beds at night, no matter what we do. May we talk about the glory of Christ, the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who so, so gave their all in terms of our continual deliverance. 
And Father, we thank you and praise you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.